0: Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Since I started Wonder Media Network, I've really come to realize how much I didn't learn in school about the role of women in American history. Luckily, there are lots of books out there that can help fill the gaps. I listen on Audible. Whether you want to stay up to date with the latest political must-reads, or you want to escape politics altogether audible has an unmatched selection of audiobooks and original content to peruse i'm currently switching off between the woman's hour and crazy rich asians sometimes you need a little of both you can get a free audiobook of your choosing if you go to audibletrial.com women belong in the house
2: The midterm elections could make history because women are claiming a seat at the table. The structures were built by and for certain people, and women weren't around the table when those structures were being built. America may be finally calling the question, do white men still have a singular claim on real power in our politics? I'm Kai Wright. Join us for the United States of Anxiety, Gender, Power, and the Midterm Elections, a podcast from WNYC Studios. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome back to Women Belong in the House.
3: I agree with whoever said that just getting
1: women into political office isn't enough. We need to have a revolution in thinking first. I'm your host, Jenny Kaplan, and I'm the co-founder of Wonder Media Network. The midterm election is less than a week away. It's already historic. A record number of women and a record number of women of color are running for office. We're telling their stories. We're also looking at why there are so few women in office to begin with and how our government might change if our representatives look more like the people they represent. Today, we're telling the story of a woman who has already made history. The polls show she's likely to do it again on Tuesday.
3: Our win is a victory for working people. A victory for women. A victory for Indian
1: It looks like Deb Holland is going to be the first Native American woman in Congress. She may share that title with Sharice Davids, who's running in Kansas, though Sharice's race is a closer call. A record number of Native Americans total and a record number of Native American women are running this year. Nearly 60 Native women are running in state and national races this election. That includes Deb and Sharice, Paulette Jordan, who's running for governor in Idaho and would become the country's first ever Native governor. Minnesota's next lieutenant governor will definitely be a Native American woman, as Democrat Peggy Flanagan and Republican Donna Bergstrom are both Native and are running against one another for the role. Native Americans are significantly underrepresented in elected office. American Indians and Alaska Natives, including those of more than one race, made up 2% of the total U.S. population in 2015, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. American Indian and Alaska Native women made up 1% of the total population. There are currently zero Native women in Congress. Of the 312 people serving in statewide elective executive offices, one is a Native American or Native Alaskan woman, according to the Center for American Women in Politics. And of the 7,383 state legislatures serving nationwide, 20 are Native American or Native Alaskan women. Native Americans have been violently and politically ostracized since the founding of our country. They weren't granted full citizenship until 1924. And even after that, it took more than 40 years for Native Americans to get voting rights in all 50 states. New Mexico was actually the last state to enfranchise its Native population in 1962, according to the Library of Congress. Native Americans make up around 10% of the state's population. That brings us to our candidate of the day. Let's meet Deb. My name is Deb Holland. I am
3: the Democratic nominee for New Mexico's 1st Congressional District, and I am 57. Both my parents are veterans. My dad was a 30-year career Marine and combat veteran in Vietnam. He is a Silver Star winner, so he's buried in Arlington National Cemetery. My mom was in the Navy, and she Ended up as a 25-year federal employee in Indian education here in New Mexico. She lives at Laguna Pueblo currently. She is 83. So as we were growing up, my dad was transferred a lot to various military bases, mostly all over Southern California and also in Virginia. So we kind of crisscrossed the country many times, and sometimes moved from point A to point B in Southern California. We were stationed at Camp Pendleton. Uh, My dad was a drill instructor at MCRD, the Marine Corps Recruiting Depot, for a time. So we just did the move a lot. I went to 13 public schools before I graduated from Highland High School here in Albuquerque. But in between all of that, if my dad, he was stationed overseas overseas. We would go home to see my grandparents a lot. My grandparents were
1: products of the assimilation era, so they lived and worked in Winslow, Arizona, for a while. By assimilation era, Deb is referring to U.S. federal policies that attempted to force Native Americans to embrace U.S. and European culture.
3: They worked on the railroad, so sometimes we'd go to Winslow. But once they retired, uh, we would go home to stay with them at Mesita Village on the Laguna Pueblo. So. I was able to spend a great deal of time with my grandparents, which was really wonderful for me. My parents didn't actually, they weren't real politically involved. They voted, but we didn't really talk a whole lot about politics when I was growing up. Once I became older, you know, I realized that I was a Democrat, unlike my parents. So I definitely feel that with respect to my community involvement, my dedication and and My community service, essentially, was definitely shaped by my parents because they served our country. So I feel like in that respect,
1: they helped me to realize how important it is to serve my community. Deb started working at a young age. She's had a variety of careers. I started
3: working when I was about 15. I started working at a local bakery here in Albuquerque. I was a sales girl making $1.95 an hour. Once I graduated from high school, they moved me to the cake decorating department. So I have a trade. I was a cake decorator for a number of years, and I guess I was around 28 years old, and I... Looked in the mirror one morning and asked myself if I'd be doing this for the rest of my life because it's hard work to be at work at 6.30 or 7 every morning and you're on your feet all day. It was a lot of hard work, which is fine, but I did ask myself would I be doing that for the rest of my life, and it was then I decided that I should get a college education, so I applied to UNM and got in. So I have my degree in English and professional writing emphasis. So I am a writer also. You know, I publish some things in various magazines and creative writing uh, anthologies and so forth. And so I thought I might pursue the writing career more. However, I got out of college and four days later, my daughter was born. Being a single mom, it kind of changed my Path a little bit, and because of my background in the food industry, working at the bakery, I decided I would start my own food company. So I made salsa for a number of years. I had my company for 11 years, in fact, and my daughter and I would deliver salsa around New Mexico. We'd get it made at a commercial kitchen, make a hundred cases at a time, or whatever. So I was still doing salsa, and I decided to go to law school and. So I guess I wasn't really set on a path. It seemed like I was navigating my life, you know, at that time to make sure that my daughter
1: didn't have to be put in daycare. After law school, Deb's path again took an unexpected turn.
3: I did focus on Indian law. I took a number of Indian law classes, which were very interesting. I thought maybe I'd want to be an Indian lawyer practicing Indian law. And then after I graduated, I didn't pass my bar exam, which was a little devastating. When you're five points off, it's very frustrating. So that kind of changed my path a little, but it was me. (laughs) It was just something I had to overcome. And, you know, it didn't change my passion for getting folks out to the polls or getting people elected who I thought would be good leaders for us as a community and also for Indian country. I've had a few really wonderful jobs. One, I was a administrative director for a service provider for mentally disabled adults here in Albuquerque. I did that for several years. And then I was also a tribal administrator for a Pueblo here in New
1: Mexico and ran their federal programs. And that was also very rewarding. From the beginning of Deb's interest in activism and politics, She hoped to expand the power and voice of Native Americans. The turnout rate of American Indian and Alaska Native registered voters is 5 to 14 percentage points lower than the rate of many other racial and ethnic groups, according to the National Congress of American Indians. According to the Native American Voting Rights Coalition, one in three Native Americans isn't registered to vote. The primary reason given by that survey was a lack of information about how to register. Low voter turnout among the country's indigenous population is also due to structural barriers, including restrictive voter ID laws, polling places that are not compliant with language assistant regulations, and a lack of geographically convenient polling sites.
3: When I started getting involved in politics, I just really wanted more Native Americans to vote. I just felt like I could help that. So I started there as a phone volunteer, calling into Native American communities and asking people to vote. I mean that just turned into something larger. I I started showing up. I was a full-time volunteer for then Senator Obama in 2008. One thing led to another, I guess. And before I knew it, I was running for lieutenant governor in 2014 and and then I became the state chairwoman of the Democratic Party of New Mexico and it was all because I wanted more people to get out and vote.
1: November 6th won't be the first time that Deb has made history. In 2014, she was the first Native American woman to run on a major party ticket for Lieutenant Governor. She lost that race and instead became the chair of the Democratic Party of New Mexico. That made her the first Native American state party chair in U.S. history.
3: It was a terrible year for Democrats in 2014. We lost our state house that year. The morale was not good. We had a Republican governor in office who was making terrible decisions about our behavioral health care system and our education system. The morale was really down for Democrats. And so that year, nobody was really stepping up to run for lieutenant governor. I called a friend of mine up in Taos Pueblo who had been essentially organizing her community for decades, 30 years. She's been on the ground getting people registered and to vote. And I called her and asked her what she thought about me running for lieutenant governor. And she said, well, we've all been on the ground for a long, long time. And maybe if you run, you can help get us to the next level. And so I thought, Maybe I can do this. Maybe I can get more people involved and engaged and energized.
1: Many of the women we've spoken to this season have cited President Trump's election as a reason they decided to get into the race. Deb was already in the center of things in New Mexico during the 2016 election. She saw then that rallying voters against the now president could be an effective strategy.
3: In 2016, I was the state chairwoman of the party. We messaged very heavily against Trump's campaign. And our message resonated with voters. And we won across New Mexico. We won. The Democrats, we won our state house back. We increased their seats in the Senate. We won two out of three statewide elections. Hillary Clinton won with 8% of the vote. So we messaged on that fact that President Trump does not speak for New Mexicans. And I truly don't believe that he does. He still does not speak for us.
1: Deb is a great example of the fact that many of the women who are running this election may be running for this particular position for the first time. But it's not their first foray into activism. Here's Leah Daughtry. Leah is a nationally recognized teacher, preacher, speaker, organizer, leader, planner, and political strategist. In 2008 and 2016, Leah served as the CEO of the Democratic National Convention Committee. She's also the president and CEO of a boutique strategy planning firm called On These Things. She was speaking at a live event at the National Women's Party, so pardon the audio quality. —
3: So we're not talking about somebody who sprung up out of, you know, Zeus's head. They have been in office, they are elected officials, and they just decided I'm gonna step out here and I'm gonna try something new mm-hmm. and a new way of connecting. And because, you know, of the way that our country is structured, it's like, ooh, a new face. Mm-hmm. Ayana's been in She's city council for, for years. Yeah. She's not a new face. Stacy was the minority leader of the legislature. She was yeah. she yeah. not a new face. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you know, the way that our, our messaging is structured mm-hmm. in this country, right? We tend to, we white. Male is a state is what, is, is what is okay, It's the status quo. The status quo. So here comes Stacy, the minority leader of the Georgia legislature. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness, there's no face.
1: This isn't Deb's first trip into politics. It's not her daughter's either. That was evident when Deb told her daughter she was running.
3: When I decided to run for Congress, she was like, cool, let's get busy. You know, I have such a wonderful family. My sisters, I have two older sisters and a younger brother and my daughter and my mom, and they were all very supportive immediately. My daughter's been campaigning with me since she was about nine. She's been helping me on all the campaigns I've worked on. She's come out, she's canvassed with me, she's made phone calls. She knows how to do a lot of organizing,
1: so she's been helpful. Before she took the leap, Deb consulted with people in her community to try to figure out if they could really pull out a win.
3: I've worked many many campaigns doing various jobs and I'm an organizer too, right? So I'm I've been an organizer for a long time and so for me thinking about running and making a decision to run the first question I asked myself was can I raise the money? Can I win? I looked at some past races and knew that I had to raise a certain amount of money. So one night I got my friends together, people I had worked on campaigns with for a long time. I cooked dinner and invited them over to my house. And we just talked about, can I do this, right? Can I raise enough money? Can I organize and get enough votes out? For me, it was really important to believe that I had a chance of winning, right? Because you have to be realistic if you're going to run a campaign. After that evening, we said, yes, we can get a winning team together. We can do this. We can do that. And so I decided to run. And of course, it's because I felt truly that I could be a good representative for this district because I have lived in the district for a long time. I have been extremely active in the community. I've talked to many, many people. I've knocked on thousands of doors here in the district in my organizing efforts and getting folks out to vote. So I just felt like I knew it well and that I could be a really strong voice for the people here.
1: Deb's chances are bolstered by the fact that she's running for an open seat. As we've discussed in previous episodes, it's hard to beat an incumbent. They win the vast majority of the time. Here's Kathleen Dolan. She's a professor and the chair of the political science department at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. We know in 2018,
3: there is a sort of historically large number of women running for Congress in the United States. But many, many, many of those women are running as challengers facing Republican incumbents. What we would suggest, right, is that some number of those women may win, but more of those women who are challengers are less likely to win. So even times when we have a large increase in the number of women running, they have to be running in, quote unquote, the right circumstances to really increase women's representation. And for most candidates, the best way to get into office is to run for an open seat race. So the more women we have running in open seat races, the
1: easier time we're going to have getting women elected. Deb is one of many women running this year who doesn't have a stereotypically picture-perfect family. She's a single mom. She says the fact that she's known struggle allows her to connect with the people of her district.
3: I mean, my daughter's 24, so I imagine that is helpful, right? I mean, I think it's harder when you have small children or children at home that you're still raising. I mean, I'm always going to be raising her, but (laughs) she does have her own apartment and pays their own bills and that kind of thing. You know, it's part of my story. And I feel like, for me, I live in a state where half of our population is Medicaid eligible. There are a lot of poor folks in New Mexico and a lot of single moms and a lot of single dads and a lot of grandparents who are raising their grandkids. It is a state where a lot of people are struggling So I felt that I could identify with a lot of those people as a single mom, that I understood what they were going through. My story essentially recited their story as well. So it made me feel like I was connecting with them, and perhaps they felt like they were connecting with me also.
1: Here's more on New Mexico's 1st District.
3: New Mexico's 1st Congressional District, the largest city is Albuquerque. Here in Albuquerque, we have a large brewery industry that's grown a lot over the last five years. We have Sandia Labs and National Laboratories here. We have an Air Force base. We have a lot of small farmers. The Rio Grande River runs right through Albuquerque. There are a lot of small farmers in this North and South Valleys. There's farmers markets here in Albuquerque every Saturday during growing season. It's really nice. There's 60% women. I think there's like 32% Hispanic population. Uh, We have the largest urban Indian population of any city in Albuquerque. I have two Indian communities. One, Navajo community. It's called Tohajali. It's a Navajo Nation chapter. It's to the west of Albuquerque. And then I have a Pueblo in my district, too. uh, That's Sandia Pueblo, and it's just a little bit north of Albuquerque. Also, to the east of Albuquerque, we have many rural communities, and then we also have a number of Spanish land grants. So, there's lots of different communities. When you get up every morning, you can look to the east, and we have this huge, beautiful Sandia Mountain looming with the sun coming up over the mountain, and
1: it's beautiful. So, there's a lot to love about District 1. The biggest issues for the people in New Mexico are the same problems we've heard about from candidates all over the country. Healthcare and good-paying jobs. Half of our
3: state is Medicaid eligible, so that tells you where we are in terms of needing health care here. And I'd love to create an environment where people can have some jobs. And I think I've been working hard on my campaign to talk a lot about renewable energy, a Green New Deal bringing more renewable energy to my district. I think that can create some good jobs.
1: Deb says she understands the challenges facing the people in her district because she's had firsthand experience dealing with the same problems. That exemplifies why it's so important to have people from different backgrounds in office. It means more voices are being heard.
3: We have Republicans in Congress who have voted 50-some times to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Have they ever had to sit in a waiting room for three hours holding a sick child at a government hospital because they didn't have health care? Have they ever had to use Planned Parenthood because it's affordable and accessible? I doubt Paul Ryan has ever had to do that. Why should he make a decision for someone like me, a single mom who has had to sit in a waiting room of a government hospital for three hours and who has had to get her health care from Planned Parenthood, because it's affordable and accessible. I just feel like more than anything, we need people who understand what it's like to struggle, you know, who understand what it's like to have to put food back at the grocery store because you don't have enough money to pay for it. Sometimes I think about when I was growing up and we used to visit my grandparents, we'd visit them at the Pueblo. My grandmother didn't get running water or electricity till the mid-70s. So we used to have to haul water. There was a spigot in the middle of the village and you would take your buckets over there and fill them up and bring them back to the house. And in the morning when you washed your face and brushed your teeth, you know you just used a tiny little amount of water because you couldn't waste anything. You were the one who had to go haul the water back to the house. So you're very cognizant about what you're using, like what of the Earth's resources you're using, and how you try to be conservative with that. We just need people who have lived experiences who can understand what other people are going through. And there's still people right now to this day in New Mexico who don't have running water and who don't have electricity. I want to go to Congress to fight for those people.
1: Taking on the fight meant turning a blind eye to the people who doubted Deb could win.
3: A lot of people were excited about New Mexico sending the first Native woman to Congress, that it's about our state and how we care about diversity. For another thing, though, when I first started my primary election, there were a number of folks in the state who said I couldn't raise the money, who were very negative about me running. I couldn't assemble a winning team. I ended up winning my primary with close to 41% of the vote with six candidates on the ballot. I remember on election night, I talked to a couple of radio stations who, you know, were doing live election night coverage. And in both instances, they were just, oh, we're so surprised. We're so surprised. Aren't you surprised? Didn't you know, did you think you would win? It was kind of like nobody expected me to win.
1: Often, women of color are perceived to be less likely to win. Here's Ashanti Golar. Ashanti is the political director for Emerge America, an organization that recruits and trains Democratic women to run for office.
2: It's also a lot harder to raise money, particularly for women of color, because they're not considered to be viable candidates. And I hate that word. The people look at them, they're like, well, will the voters vote for them? Well, will donors give them money? How would they do on a debate stage? But at the
1: end of the day, the only people who know what a district needs are the people in the district. If you want to hear more from Ashanti, check out our second bonus episode. For now, let's get back to Deb.
3: You know, it's interesting how for someone who's never been there before, right, for me being the first Native American woman to get on this general election ballot, people were not expecting that. But in the background we knew we had a good chance of winning because we had a really incredible ground game. It was sort of like we were quietly working in the background, knocking on thousands of doors and engaging thousands of volunteers. And in the end, we won when, I mean, a lot of people expected me to win, but a lot of people did not expect me to win. So,
1: (laughs) so we surprised some, I think. Ground game can make or break a campaign the more personal an appeal for someone's support or vote, the more likely it is to work. Here's Kate Catherall. Kate is a senior partner and co-founder of The Arena, an organization that holds summits for politically interested people and supports campaigns. The Arena's mission is to convene, train, and support the next generation of civic leaders in order to create a more equitable and inclusive society. Kate's previously worked on campaigns all over the country.
2: When we rank like the effectiveness of a given tactic, it trends in a way where the most personal stuff is the stuff that has the biggest effect, whether we're trying to persuade a voter or we're trying to turn them out. So as you would imagine, the stuff that's most impactful is the relational stuff. So people telling their friends and family to go vote or talking to their friends and family about why they're supporting a candidate or an issue then it's like face to face sending text messages stuff that's legitimately personal and then the stuff that's sort of at the bottom of the spectrum in terms of effectiveness of a single touch is like tv ad mail you know stuff like that that's less personal there are exceptions to that but in general that's sort of how it works with all of that being said the impact of one conversation is still really small statistically so like if we were to send out A hundred canvassers to go knock doors for an hour. The average number of votes that we could get from those 100 hours of canvassing by volunteers in the final stretch of the campaign where we're having like turnout conversations with people and helping them make a plan to go vote is about 27 votes. So if you have a hundred volunteers out there knocking doors for an hour on a Saturday morning, you're netting about 27 votes on average. That really adds up, right? Elections are won by Sometimes less than a percentage point. And so it's not to diminish the importance of that, but it's, it's small. (laughs) The study that was really interesting was about how much larger the effect is when the conversation is actually with the candidate. This is not precise because I don't have the study with me and I, my brain for numbers isn't excellent, but I want to say that it said a candidate could have a 22 percentage point impact by having those conversations. So that's just way more than anyone else could ever have. And it's actually like the highest effect I've seen of any kind of contact.
1: Across the U.S., candidates who have focused on having boots on the ground and getting new voters registered are facing challenges from people who want to restrict who's able to vote. As the midterm elections
0: rapidly approach, there's been a rash of voter
1: identification conflicts in states across the country.
0: Laws across the U.S. are being passed to make it harder not easier to
2: vote. Since the 2016 election, nine states with Republican state legislatures have passed laws restricting the vote. A new voter ID law is in effect North Dakota's House Bill 1369 revamped the state's voting requirements. The law didn't create an ID card, but instead listed information that needs to appear on a person's identification so they can vote. The name, a residential address, and a date of birth must all appear on the card. But here's the thing. For North Dakota's native population who live on one of the five tribal reservations, most people there use post office boxes, which can't be used as a residential address.
1: From shortening or getting rid of early voting, to purging voter rolls, to malfunctioning voting machines, voter suppression could have a major impact this election. Here's Rebecca Traister. Rebecca is a feminist journalist and the author of Good and Mad, the revolutionary power of
0: women's anger. What we're seeing is it's unprecedented or at least unprecedented within contemporary memory. So you have on the one hand, all kinds of efforts to suppress votes. And those are really working, right? We can see the Supreme Court just upheld a decision in North Dakota that effectively disenfranchises Native Americans. Brian Kemp, a secretary of state in Georgia, is suppressing the votes of tens of thousands of Georgians, the majority of them African-American, which is, particularly egregious. I mean, it's egregious by any stretch of anyone's imagination, but Kemp himself is running for governor against Stacey Abrams, who would be the nation's first black woman governor. You see voter purges happening in states around the country. So in some ways, the government (laughs) in states and across the country is moving us back closer to voting circumstances in the Jim Crow South, for instance, when disenfranchisement was key to the perpetuation of the way that the government worked and who held power. At the same time, you also see real efforts to activate parts of the electorate who have not historically been reliable voters, especially voters of color and poor voters who historically haven't been treated by parties and their machinery as viable voters. There have been real efforts in lots of states to expand the electorate, in that direction at the same time that state legislatures and courts are working to shrink the electorate.
1: It's really hard to feel optimistic when it feels like the rules of the game continue to be rigged. It can seem not worth it to even bother. But people like Deb are taking the opposite tact. Not only is she running, she's already working to help other women get elected, too.
3: Yesterday, I went out to Acoma, Pueblo. It was their feast day, It's not in my district, but I try to go there almost every single year. I love Acoma Pueblo. I actually met the congressional candidate from CD2, Sochi Torres Small. I met her up there and just took her around to some houses because that is in her district. And I wanted her to meet some folks just walking around and visiting with people. People were excited. Even up there, this really small Native American community, people were excited about my race, about her race. They stopped us as we were walking and said hello. And it was really nice that people are engaged, even in a small community like
1: that. Often people don't even think about running for office because they've never seen a politician who looks like them. The more that people like Deb from underrepresented backgrounds run and win elected office the more kids from those backgrounds will think they can do that someday too
3: i hope i win and i hope that other native women will be inspired to run and feel like they have a chance this isn't the first time native women have run for office right there have been a number of women who have run for a congressional seat in the past and haven't won you know it's not always easy but i'm happy and proud to be the first Native woman in Congress and just really want to make sure that I am leaving the ladder down for other women, other women of color, other Native women, to feel like they can have a chance to win as well. So I am going to be there just to make sure that I am helping as
1: many women as possible to climb that ladder into office. The election is on Tuesday. Between now and then, We're going to bring you as many additional voices as we can. We've got two more candidates, plus, we'll be bringing you updates from the final days on the trail and maybe even some bonus expert content. Also, a quick plug if you want to get involved in the election, it's now or never. Don't wake up on November 7th wishing you'd done more. If you feel nervous or uncomfortable about volunteering, I totally get it. I promise, though, that any campaign will be extremely grateful for another pair of hands. And please get out and vote. Bring a few friends while you're at it. This is our best opportunity to make our voices heard. Thank you for listening to this episode of Women Belong in the House. If you enjoyed it, please tell your friends. If you didn't, let me know. I wanna hear from you. Here at Wonder Media Network, we're all about starting conversations and hearing new perspectives. You can find me on Twitter at Jenny M. Kaplan. Follow us on Instagram at WMN.media or email me at pod at wondermedianetwork.com. Talk to you soon. Here's a quick message about a podcast from Ozzy, Take On America. Are all black men progressive? Are all Asian American millennials politically engaged? This special audio series brings together people of the same race or ethnic background in order to shine a spotlight on their diversity and cut through the cultural stereotypes. Explore the range of opinions among groups of people who are often presumed to vote as a block. Get an inside look into the conversations these communities are having among themselves. Based on the groundbreaking TV show, Take on America with Ozzy is now available as a podcast. Check it out. Take on America, the podcast, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.